That's Alan Hirsch uh, talking about evangelism and how Western consumerism, of course, has infiltrated our culture to the point that even the church has adopted a consumerist approach to sharing the gospel. And I studied this for several years in grad school, and so it's uh, compelling to me and I think pertinent to discuss today. I wanted to show the video because it, it touches also on what we talked about last week and we'll continue to discuss today uh, how we as followers of Jesus Christ are to live according to the Spirit of God rather than to the cultural norms of society. And this is a really important discussion for us to have uh, in the church because although the Bible does address cultural issues, much of what is addressed culturally is descriptive of the time and setting when the different books were written. In other words, there are portions of Scripture that are prescriptive, and then there's Scripture that is descriptive. And there's a big difference. Okay? A passage that is prescriptive is a prescription for all of us to follow. It tells us what to do and how to live. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 is a great example of a, a passage of Scripture that is prescriptive. When Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That was prescriptive for all of His followers present and future. Those were instructions for everyone who follows Christ. Those disciples that he was speaking to at that moment were certainly not able to make disciples of all nations. That was an obvious statement. These were instructions intended for anyone and everyone who was and ever would be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. So that is an example of a, a passage of Scripture that is prescriptive. An example of a descriptive passage of Scripture would be 1 Chronicles 4. 9 and 10, two verses that are sandwiched in the middle of a lineage, which many of you know is the prayer of Jabez. It says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain, Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Okay, this passage is describing a prayer that a man named Jabez prayed and the result of that prayer. This is a description of something that happened. It is not a prescription or a formula for something that we're commanded to do every day. And one of the problems that we run into in the church is when we try and make a passage of Scripture that is descriptive and make it prescriptive. We've seen that in history concerning many passages involving slavery and the treatment of women and minorities. And so we have to be very careful not to take something that is only intended as a description and make it a prescription, right? Which is what we've seen happen with the prayer of Jabez, by the way. And it's not that there aren't principles at work in the descriptive passages in the Bible. There are. Often there are deep principles to be learned. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but that's not what we're talking about here. The issue here is when we say, because Jabez prayed this prayer and God answered him in a particular way, that means that I can pray that exact prayer and as long as I do it every day and I really mean it, God will bless me in the same way that he did Jabez. The error in that thinking is in taking the description of something that happened in the Bible and trying to turn it into a formula, a prescription for all of us to follow. That is a, a misapplication of Scripture at best, and it can be a gross 
distortion of Scripture for personal gain at worst. Okay? Jesus warned us not to pray vain, repetitive prayers in Matthew 6, 7. And yet... There are booklets that have been written, as most of you probably know, around the prayer of Jabez. And they've been published and circulated worldwide. And some have tried to use that, some have tried to use that as a formula for personal success in their life. And that can not only become an empty pursuit of material health and wealth, but it also emphasizes the consumerist nature of much of the Western church, which in some cases, unfortunately, has become a bit of a caricature of the New Testament church. Now, just so you understand where I'm coming from, because I I know that some of you probably have that book at home. That's okay. There are some really wonderful spiritual principles that can be gleaned from the prayer of Jabez. It's scripture. And I'm not condemning Dr. Wilkinson, by the way, Bruce Wilkinson, who wrote that book about that passage, although I do think he draws some conclusions in it that he shouldn't, because in my opinion, it's very misleading. Why is it misleading? Because there is no formula for prayer that will guarantee us health, wealth, and material success. I wish there was, but there isn't. There is, however, a model for prayer that Jesus gave us in Matthew 6, 7 through 14, which again, you know as the Lord's Prayer, teaches us how to pray, but not the exact words that we're to repeat over and over and over again every day as some type of incantation that will produce a set of guaranteed results. All right? So as we read and study Scripture, it's really important that we differentiate when we're reading something that is descriptive versus something that is prescriptive. And again, often the cultural issues in the Bible are descriptive because they're addressing the culture at the time, obviously. However, and it's a big however, on the flip side, this is one argument that a lot of people use in opposition to many passages of Scripture when they want to try and invalidate something that they don't like that the Bible says. You'll often hear people say things like, well, that passage being read is addressing a cultural issue. And that's only descriptive of that particular point and place in history. So it doesn't apply to us today at all. And they throw it out. This is where solid hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for Bible interpretation, comes in. This is when it becomes really important that we understand how to read and study scripture because we need to be able to identify the spiritual principles being taught in scripture, even in those passages that are describing something that happened in an ancient culture. Okay? Because even though human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. Right? Human culture constantly changes. Human nature never changes. The tendencies and needs of humanity have always been the same. And so even though there are passages of Scripture that are describing a particular cultural situation at a specific time and location in history, that doesn't negate what the Bible's trying to teach us about the nature of man and God out of that descriptive passage. And so we have to learn to glean those principles regardless of the culture that they were being presented in and then apply them to our own lives and teach them to others, again, regardless of the the cultural context. Okay, so the prayer of Jabez is a description of a prayer that a man named Jabez prayed a really long time ago, which is in no way meant to be a rote, memorized prayer that we pray over and over again to achieve some guaranteed result. However, the spiritual principles that we do learn from studying Jabez's prayer have to do with the validity of asking for God's blessings in your life 
and the value in our prayers when they come from an honorable and a righteous heart. The, the effectiveness of prayer when it is offered from someone who's completely sold out for God. And by the way, the best way to validate a spiritual principle from the Bible is by confirming it with other scriptures in the Bible. Because God doesn't contradict himself, despite popular belief in some of our liberal theological circles to the contrary. So Jabez's prayer teaches us that he was an honorable man, and his prayer was obviously very powerful and, and an effective one. And just as an example of scripture confirming scripture, James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. They agree. Okay, so these are examples of spiritual principles that transcend human culture and instead address human nature and God's nature as well. Okay, God throughout scripture, we, we read and we say in the Old Testament especially, why did he allow that or do these things? And Look, there's, God is full of grace and he has historically worked, allowed himself to work within cultures throughout the world and throughout time because he's gracious and he doesn't just wipe us all off the face of the earth and start over again. We did that once, right, with a big flood. But from then to now, God has worked through human culture and allowed us uh, in, in all of our mess and confusion to find him in his grace and love for us, okay? Now, we talked a bit about culture last week in part one of our sermon, Life by the Spirit, which we're finishing today as a continuation of our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, as we work our way together through the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to finish chapter 13, which, although descriptive of an event involving Paul and Barnabas uh, in the religious culture of their day, it also presents some very important principles about evangelism that we can glean from the story. And so, uh, obviously, because we're systematically studying our way through the, the entire book of Acts, uh, these messages tend to build one upon the other. And I just want to remind you, if you miss one here and there, which some people have come and asked me for my notes, which you're always welcome to, but they're also available on our website at upcountrychurch.org if you want to go back. And they're sorted by date, I believe. So let's turn to Acts chapter 13. And we'll pick up where we left off last week, uh, right on verse 13. And again, these passages are describing some events surrounding Paul and Barnabas. They're descriptive. And yet, there are principles for the follower of Christ presented here that we don't want to miss. And the first one of those is that living by the Spirit of God means that we follow Him no matter the risk. Okay, so let's read through a few verses here and we'll go back and fill in some details that will help shed some light on just a, a part of what these followers of Jesus Christ had to endure by choosing to follow him and where he led them. All right, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark was with him, and, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So just to set the scene here, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark leave uh, Paphos and ultimately head to Antioch uh, in Pisidia, which is a different place than Antioch in Syria uh, from where Paul and Barnabas were originally sent out. And for some reason unknown to us, John Mark decides to head back to Jerusalem. 
And although we don't get any more information here about his reason for leaving, we know that uh, from Paul's conflict with Barnabas in chapter 15, that his leaving didn't sit well with Paul at all. And when you begin to understand what the travel between these places was like in those days, we can certainly hazard some guesses as to the possible reasons for John Mark turning back. This was a six-day journey from Pisidian uh, Antioch uh, to get there. They had to pass through extremely rugged terrain without any of our kind of modern hiking equipment and nice hiking shoes and boots. They traveled 80 miles up through river valleys that were infested with bands of thieves and other criminals to eventually uh, reach the Anatolian Plateau, which was over 3,600 feet in elevation. This was a, a grueling and unforgiving trip. It was fraught with danger and discomfort and uncertainty. Definitely not for the faint of heart. And again, we don't know why John Mark bailed out on the trip, but it's not too hard to imagine several possible reasons for doing so, given the risks involved and what they experienced. And yet Paul and Barnabas continue on and end up, as Paul so often did, in the synagogue upon his arrival. And generally not a friendly environment for the Christian. And regular synagogue services at the time usually centered around uh, the reading of the scriptures from the law and the prophets. It was typically led by a ruling elder. And I used to think it was strange when I would read this, why did they ask Paul to speak? Well, it was common for those ruling elders in the synagogue to invite someone else to get up and speak on a scriptural text of their choosing. And that speaker would then generally weave their message into the primary reading from the day. And so that's what was happening here. Someone from Paul's group was invited to speak. And of course, we know Paul stands up. He gets everyone's attention and he launches right into sharing the gospel. And so we'll get into that in a moment. But let's not miss the fact that just getting there to the synagogue where Paul is going to share the good news about Jesus Christ, just getting there was a major test of their resolve to follow Jesus, no matter where he was leading them or what he was leading them through. Okay? Uh, sometimes we have a sense of where we're going and maybe even what we're supposed to do when we get there. Often, I think we understand our calling and we've, we get even excited about it and all the possibilities that might come from it. But at times we get caught off guard when the path to getting there is rife with risk and discomfort and uncertainty. And we pray like, Lord, you gave me this calling and I've said yes to it and I've committed to follow you. So why am I experiencing so much you know, difficulty in getting there? Why is this so hard? Why is it taking so long? Why is this happening to me? Right? And at times it almost seems like everything and everyone is conspiring against us when we're simply trying to be obedient to the call of God in our lives. But, but listen, it is in the journey that he develops our character and he tests our mettle so that when we are carrying out that calling later and the going gets rough and it always gets rough at times we don't tuck tail and run from the call because our resolve has already been tempered in the fires of following him in the journey I personally believe this is why Paul was so opposed to taking John Mark with him on a later journey because I think he knew the dangers and risks intimately well and he wasn't interested in going with anyone who wasn't going to bail out on him when he needed him the most. It's the journey that shapes us. It's the journey that tests us. And if we want to become the men and women that he's intended for us to be, we have to be willing to stay the course wherever he leads, no matter the risk. 
Okay? Now, the next several verses are a description of what Paul said and did once he was invited to speak. And there's another principle to be learned here, which is that if we're truly living our lives by the Spirit of God, if you're being led by Him, then you will continually find yourself in situations where He will give you opportunities to share the gospel. Okay? And I can't find any scripture to date that gives us an out for sharing the truth about Jesus Christ with others. And yet I've had church folks tell tell me over the years uh, that going out and witnessing to people just wasn't their calling. Well, then whose calling is it? I'm not talking about standing on the street corner and shouting quotes from the book of Revelation at people when they walk by. We're talking about sharing with people that you're around day after day, people that you encounter, you have relationship with, people that have no walk with Christ, no profession of faith in Jesus of their own. We all encounter people in our jobs and neighborhoods and our stores and schools and routine errands that we run every day that we have some rapport with. And if you don't, then develop a, a friendly relationship with people that you see on, a, on an ongoing basis. And over a period of time, when the moment is right, I promise you the Holy Spirit will create an opportunity for you to invite them to church or to ask them if they'd like prayer for that issue that they've opened up to you about or tell them about what Jesus has done in your life. And you know what? If they refuse any or all of that, don't treat them any differently. I'm tired of watching the body of Christ. We, we cozy up to people. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about over a span of my life. Uh, watching Christians cozy up to people. And the moment they realize that they're not going to respond the way that they want them to, they just cut them off and go on to the next thing. What does that say about us? It's insincere. All right. We need to continue to be a friend. We need to continue to meet the needs of people when it's appropriate. And as they continue to experience your genuine faith being lived out before them, if the Holy Spirit opens up their heart to receive, you'll have another opportunity in his timing. You just keep on with that, right? Sometimes it's a lifetime process. How many people have you heard about said, Grandma prayed for me for 29 years. (laughs) He finally gave my heart to Jesus, right? Our part is to simply be faithful in all of that. In fact, in Ephesians 2.10, which is a letter to the body of Christ, it says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Okay, and that phrase, that we should walk in them, and that verse was a Hebrew idiom. It was a saying that referred to the manner in which a person lived his or her life. It's describing how Christians are supposed to live. A life devoted to good works. Well, what are the good works? James 2, 14 through 17. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Our works are the acts of kindness and sacrifice and commitment and support that we give to other people. But notice James says that we cannot separate our faith from our works. Our faith is meaningless without our works. And then in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus says we cannot separate our works from our faith either. Just as our faith is meaningless without works, so too our works are meaningless without our faith being openly expressed. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Otherwise, they wouldn't know who to give glory to. They'd just give it to you, right? The only way your good works for others will have any meaning beyond anything temporary is when they're working in conjunction with the profession of your faith. The old saying that I commonly heard in church coming up was that my witness is my lifestyle. That's not wrong. It's just incomplete. Your lifestyle, your works are a part of your testimony, but that must be accompanied by those moments when we actually open up our mouths and tell other people about Jesus Christ. Okay, there's simply no way around it. If you read the Bible, at some point we have to let our light shine before others. We have to testify to the gospel to other people. And certainly Paul understood that. And we see him here doing just that. So let's keep reading. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted army led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He's including their time in captivity, their time of wandering through the desert, and their time of conquest. 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So, so here's Paul in a situation that would not be too dissimilar from walking into a mosque today, a Muslim temple, during a corporate prayer time and sharing your faith in Jesus Christ with everyone there. Paul starts out establishing some Old Testament history which first of all gives them credibility because they all follow the Old Testament writings. And it also gets everyone on the same page right before he drops this bombshell about Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father, saw corruption. 
but whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, here's the moment, Paul gets them, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Those are fighting words right there. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Okay? So Paul lays out the gospel here very clearly, and he uses scripture to back up everything he's saying. He gives this sketch of Old Testament history. He quotes from Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 55-3 and Psalm 16-10 and Habakkuk 1-5 and later Isaiah 29-14 and Isaiah 49-6. He's using a ton of scripture. Okay, in the Muslim faith today, they agree with much of the Old Testament. The disagreement comes in when we start talking about Jesus, the Christian faith. So imagine standing in a mosque in Iraq today and being asked to speak. And, and you go through a lot of Old Testament scripture. So far, so good. And then just about the time you have everybody right there with you, you begin to tell them about Jesus being the Son of God, the Messiah who came and died for us and was raised from the dead. Oh, and by the way, the only way that your sins can ever be forgiven is through this Jesus. Now, now we're in it deep, Right? Now we've really stirred something up. And this is very similar to what Paul was experiencing. Not everyone in his audience was amenable to his message, as we'll see. Paul surely knew that this would be the case. But he also knew that no matter how good he lived his life, no matter how many poor people he helped, no matter how kind he was to everyone he met, no matter how many charities he supported, if he didn't open up his mouth from time to time and actually tell people about Jesus Christ, all of his good works would amount to nothing. This is a scriptural principle lived out by the disciples of Jesus Christ in the Bible that we cannot miss and we'd better not alter in our own lives because this is patently not a cultural issue. It is a human nature issue. Humanity's greatest need across all of time all geography and all culture is precisely the same. Humanity's greatest need is Jesus Christ. He is the only answer to what ails this world. And God's chosen vehicle for getting that answer out to the world is the church. That's you and me as we live out the gospel in works and in words. Okay, That's why we chose the tagline that we did after our church name. Upcountry Church, experiencing life together, living out the gospel. It's on our website, it's on our business cards, it's on our digital bulletin because we want to be known as the people who live out the gospel in everything that we do and in what we say. Okay, there's simply no way around it. If you're following Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will open up opportunities for you to share your faith with others. And I don't want to stand before the Lord at the end of this life and have to attempt to explain why I never tried. I also don't want to see friends and family and people that I'm in relationship with spending eternity apart from God. He gives us opportunities to share the gospel. Let's not miss them. In fact, let's be known as the people in Traveler's Rest who are always telling other people about Jesus Christ, who are always inviting people to church, who are always doing things for people who need help. 
Let's live up to the name Christian. And let's make, let's make church a word that people want to talk about again. Okay? Paul and Barnabas certainly understood the risks they were taking. And they continued to follow Jesus anyway. And they never seemed to miss an opportunity to share their faith, even when their audience wasn't always friendly to the message. Okay? And so we'll finish with one more principle uh, that we learn in the last few verses of our text this morning. And that's the fact that the results of your ministry are entirely up to Him. The citizens at Pisidian were a mix of Pergians, Greeks, Jews, and Romans. Okay, Paul and Barnabas' audience at the synagogue was a mixture of Jews and Gentile God-fears. So it was a really diverse group of people. And Paul and Barnabas could have never predicted the outcome of sharing the gospel that day. Obviously, it was a risky move. There were no, uh, they were no strangers to, to controversy when it came to the gospel. And yet they trusted the leading of the Holy Spirit in their lives so implicitly that they were obedient to share their faith and trust that the Holy Spirit would, would do the rest. And that is the posture that we should all have when sharing our faith. It's not our job to produce the results. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We simply have to be faithful in sharing the truth. Okay? Not everyone is going to receive the message. It's a fact. Uh, remember the prophecy from Habakkuk 1.5 that Paul quotes that we just read in his speech at the synagogue. He says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Some people are not going to believe. Okay? Not everyone's going to accept the message when we bring it. And that has to be enough for us. Because we simply deliver the message. He produces the results. Okay, so let's finish the chapter quickly here. And we'll see what the results were from Paul's, uh, Paul and Barnabas' efforts. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's pretty good. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Man, I'm ready for that to happen here. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. I wonder if they did it in front of the Jews. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Isn't this indicative of our own experience when we witness to people? It's a mixed bag. Some accept the message, others reject it. And although that may be sad, the beautiful part about that is we don't have to carry that responsibility on our own shoulders. Verse 48 says, And as many as were appointed... To eternal life believed. That word appointed to the ancient, in the ancient Greek language is the word tasso. It's a, a primary verb and it means to appoint on one's own responsibility or authority. 
In other words, it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility and his, on his authority to produce results. It's our responsibility to simply share the message. In John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, we're not sovereign over anyone's soul. God is. So don't get hung up on results either way is the point I'm trying to make. And I know that's easy to say. Uh, as a pastor, I can tell you it's very tempting to seek validation based on results. But all you have to do to throw cold water on that temptation is look at the life and ministry of some of the prophets. How about Jeremiah? That poor guy couldn't catch a break or anything. He devoted his entire life to doing whatever God told him to do. And he saw little to no results, at least in his lifetime. But from our perspective, centuries later, we can't begin to calculate the impact that Jeremiah's life and ministry have had on millions of people who have read the Bible. Okay, the fruit of Jeremiah's ministry is immeasurable, even though he never saw it, nor did those around him in his own lifetime. So we need to be a bit careful about focusing on the results, because the truth is, we scarcely know what the results are from our ministry to others, because often those results don't come until much later and reach much farther than the individual encounters that we have with people that we meet and minister to on a daily basis, right? We share the message. He produces the results. And so our success should therefore be measured by our faithfulness, not by some kind of head count or notches on our belt. Right? If we're going to claim those four words, I am a Christian that we talked about two weeks ago, that means living this life by the Spirit of God leading us every day. It means following Him no matter the risk. It means taking every opportunity that He presents before us to share the gospel, and it means being faithful to that calling no matter the results. Don't get discouraged when it all doesn't go the way that you thought that it would. Stay the course. I want to make Jesus famous because of our faithfulness. I'm not concerned about being the biggest church in the world. I'd love to be the most faithful one. I want our lives to be so extraordinarily committed to Him that people would look at us and how we live and say, man, what those people believe in over there at Upcountry Church, that has to be real because their commitment, their faithfulness to live out what they believe regardless of the risk, no matter the cost, even when there doesn't seem to be any measurable results, their commitment and their faith is still so evident in everything that they do and in everything they say. How great would it be if there was a constant buzz in this city about what's going on at number two Church Street? And then all we'd have to do is point them to Jesus as they come through those doors because they'd already believe that this is a place where they can finally find what they've been looking for. How great would that be? The truth is, I don't think we're that far from it. And I promise you, if we will stay the course, even when the journey gets tough, we will see that vision come true. Okay? Let's pray.